Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Kitchen Table. I am your host, Justin White. Sitting next to me is Josh Winter. He's the talent. We are your amateur podcasters again this episode. Made it to another one. Thank you for joining us. This week, we have Anthony Castros, retired battalion chief of Sacramento Metro Fire Department. Right. Not city, but metro. Um, Well-known throughout the fire service in teaching um, leadership, in teaching test prep, and in teaching a program he has called Calm the Chaos, which helps people organize incident, incidents um, strategically and tactically and, and, and functionally. Um, one question I wanted to talk about early this week is we've hit leadership quite a bit. We, the last episode of last season uh, with Jose Garcia, we talked a lot about leadership. Um, we had the hockey podcast come out. Um, the hockey think tank boys came, talked a lot about leadership. And everybody's going to sit back and, and listen to this one and hear a lot about leadership. So why is it you think that we're talking about leadership so often? Well, one, I think that it's one of those topics that um, – I don't think it gets talked about enough. And I don't know if we're going overkill on the conversation, um, but I think the more that we can talk about it, the more that we can um, kind of come to an agreement on what leadership means to us as an organization, because it's going to be different for everybody, right? And so, like, who who are we as CSFD leaders? And, and I'll hopefully be, you know, quick to say I've never gone and said, I'm a, I'm a great leader, you know, but what, what I envision myself as is um, a, uh, a kind of a one who practices leadership. And I think that it's very important for, you know, for that to happen so that we can get it out, we can talk about it, we can kind of figure out who we need to be. And, um, and I think that it was great to have Anthony Castros on with his background because not only, you know, 30 years with um, Sacramento Metro, but um, I was talking to him about what his educational background is. And he has a, um, let me see, it is a bachelor's of science in business and a concentration on human resources. So if you look at, you know, where he's come up through the ranks and then um, his kind of the business side of it, the management, leadership, and then human resources, you know, learning about people. It, it, I think it really comes out in what he does. Sure. And I, I, you know, I've, I've always said that I don't get to decide if I'm a good leader or not. You know, that's not something, um, you know, just because I say I'm a good person doesn't mean I am. You have to ask everybody around you who interacts with you because if you're a jerk, then you're a jerk. Right. You know, and everybody else decides that. You don't get to decide whether you're a good person. I don't get to decide whether I'm a good leader. Um, that's for the people that work with me uh, to decide. Um, and I, and I, I just kind of wonder if we, you know, because we have a kind of a, an interest and a passion for it, if it's, not, it's a, if it's a top topic that's easy for us to, to talk about. You know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I'm constantly trying to learn and get other people's perspectives. Um, not only on leadership, but life in general, so I can relate to people better. And so it, it's an easy topic for for me to, you know, to throw out there and see what other people's thoughts are. I, I know that 
since I became comfortable about talking about it, the easier it is for me to talk about, right? I think, you know, years ago when I first started learning about this, you know, kind of greater concept of leadership, it was really hard for me to talk about. I've, I've always said it, for me, it was like explaining the universe. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. You know, it's just this big thing. Um, but when we get comfortable with talking about it, we can really break it down and see that it's it's actually quite the, the concepts are very simple. You mm -hmm. know, it becomes more complex because we're dealing with people and people are complicated. Um, you know, but like here's something good to bring up. So the Avs just won the Stanley Cup last they night, did. right? They did. And so, yeah, and I mean, that's the first time in how, like, what was the last time? 20 years. 20 years. 20 years. 20 years yeah. So I look at that and this was game six. And, and I should know this, mm -hmm. but I don't always follow hockey. Sure. Um, but. You know, I'm watching this game last night, and because they've went through a couple wins and losses, I'm thinking, you know, what role did the head coach, what role did their leadership positions, what role did their captain play in bringing them from, hey, we won a couple, all of a sudden we just lost. Like, how do we get back out of this? You know, how big, um, how big of a role was leadership in in that win or those sure. wins? Well, I can't. I certainly can't speak because I've never played that level of athletics where you have, you know, everybody's pretty driven at that level. I mean, just to get to that level, you have to be focused and you have to sacrifice a lot. and You have to be very, you know, as you would say, purpose, you know, purpose driven, you know, you have a goal in mind and everything that you do is to gain, you know, or accomplish that goal. Um, once you get to that level, your new goal becomes win a championship, right? And, and, and Nathan McKinnon was always good at saying, because he's, you know, one of the better players in the world, right? Arguably top three to five players, you know, in the world. And he keeps saying, you know, thank you for telling me that, but I haven't, I haven't won anything, you know? You know, I haven't won Stanley Cups. I haven't won MVPs. I haven't done any of that stuff, so for you to even mention me as, you know, one of the greater players in the world is, you know, he just wasn't accepting of that. Um, and understanding that he's um, so competitive and so driven, it's it's almost um, urban legend about, he's almost miserable to be around. Really? Yeah, because he's very open, he's very blunt, he's very to the point. Um, he recognizes that it's a team effort to accomplish the goals that he has set for himself. And so he's very in your face and do this and do this, do this, and hold, but holds you accountable, you know? And when we're, you're one of the best players in the world, you can do that, right? Not everybody on the team can do that. Um, but to have lost how they have lost in the past, which they went from five years ago, they had the worst team in the NHL, to three straight exits of the playoffs in the second round to now winning the Stanley Cup, I think it took a le the leadership of not just after losing game five, but over the whole season to keep people focused on what they were trying to accomplish and how they could, how they could do that. Um, so I think the foundation had been set at the beginning of the season, you know, and talking about the past and laying it out. Hey, this is what happened in the past. This is what we've learned. Don't get off course. This is still our, our goal. Our goal as a team. Um, so when they lost in game five, when they could have could have finished it off here in, in Denver, it was easier to go back and say, look, we still have opportunity. We still need to focus. Here's our game plan. Here's our structure. Here's our system. Stay within that. That's what got us to this point. 
and we'll accomplish our goals. You know, and so it was more of the leadership instead of rallying the troops, you know, um, reaffirming what they had, the goals they had set for themselves in the beginning and had worked every day to get to. And then you could really see how their play changed in the third period last night where they went from very aggressive offensively to very aggressive defensively and really just simply trying to keep the puck down in the offensive zone. And I think Tampa Bay had three shots the whole period. One was from like 90 feet away and the other two were kind of in the zone but not real threatening shots and they just they had what they wanted right before them and that's that's where I think the leadership group pulled them together and said okay here's where we're at here's what we're trying to accomplish here's what we need to do for the next 20 minutes mm -hmm. let's go do it so yeah so two things in there so one the that concept of you could be the best in the world but what does that mean if you don't have a good team with you, mm -hmm. you know, and it kind of goes back to what we talk about here on the fire service. It's like, this isn't about me, right? This is about the community and the way that we um, are successful for the community is by having these, you know, these high performing teams that can go out there and do good work. And then on the leadership side of that, what I was hearing you say was, um, you know, the, the coach for the avalanche seemed to become more of a situational leader. You know, it's like, what kind of leader did he need to be at that time? You know, does he need to be giving them direction and focus or does he need to be giving them support? And it kind of goes back to one of the things General Petraeus has said a long time ago. Um, a Congress person asked him one time, hey, what kind of leader are you? And he goes, what kind of leader do you want me to be? You know, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's pretty important, you know, as, as people are kind of coming up in their leadership roles is understanding who they need to be and how they need to implement that at the right time. Sure. And I, you bring up a good point because I think, and even you talked about this, the, about, the, about the team, right? And maybe that's why I identify with hockey so readily is it's a very much a we sport. You don't hear a lot of I, I, I in hockey unless you're talking about negative things that happened. So you lost a game, well, I need to be better. I need to help my team be better. But when you're successful, it's we, we, we. Like, we need to do this, we need to do that. We, we want to celebrate this. Um, and that's, that's something that I've enjoyed about the team atmosphere my whole life. And so, um, you know, I've been getting a lot of compliments and a lot of, I had some discussion over awards that I won, won recently and I've, that's pretty embarrassing for me because I recognize um, that everything that the training division has accomplished over the past three years is because of we, not because of anything I did. You know, we sit down as a group. We have conversations about, you know, the vision of the, of the training division, where we would like to go as a group. And then the group does the work. I don't, I don't do anything singularly. And so for me to go up and accept an individual award is humbling. But at the same time, um, everybody needs to recognize that this was a group effort. Like we didn't get through COVID because of anything special that I did. You know, it was just share some vision, have some discussions with Ken Anderson. And, and he did a lot of the work. I, did, I didn't do much of the work. And so... Um, that's the we part of it. That's the we part of, of being on a team. That's the we part of leadership. And, and it's something um, I really identify with in hockey and, and in the fire service. I see that in hockey. Um, one, 
It was really great, though, to see you go up there and, and be uncomfortable getting an award. It's Not very, that you were uncomfortable getting in front of people, <laughs> but because you were getting an award, yeah, knowing was, that to me that was great. I, I, I enjoyed that part of it. <laughs> well, I it just kept but, going and going. And I, I like I said, I appreciate it. And it just it was just awkward. And it I, yeah. was just I didn't it, quite know how to handle that. I, I would like to think that I feel the same way about a lot of those things. But there, the other side of it, too, is those were very well-deserved rewards for you. And we all know that they represent the team. We all get, um, you know, an opportunity to get recognized at one place or the other. And I think that the leader of the team is the one that is usually recognized last, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't always get, you know, the recognition that they deserve. Um, and so... You know, to defend that a little bit, um, those were very well deserved. So, well, I, I I appreciate that. It's just, you know, just it's just a. And I guess if I if 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 the awards are representative, or I'm I'm able to represent the group by getting awards, but they they have to put a name on it, and it's just, it's a bit awkward and uncomfortable for me. I'm not a big center of attention guy, um, but I also I also recognize the fact that I need to do better to recognize the effort of others. You know, there's nothing stopping me for putting other people in for awards, and I do and I do at times, but I, I still think I could do better at that. So you're saying what you're saying is I'm doing a really great job. Absolutely, thank you. That's I mean, all. That's all I needed. <laughs> absolutely. All right, so let's get back to Castros. Yes. Um, Kind of guide me through what we can expect in the interview coming up. Um, so a little bit of background. Um, I think that Kenny Bradley was the one that really kind of got me um, kind of looking at who Chief Anthony Castro's was. Um, we had started talking about it when he was in the officer development position. Um, I watched... Um, you know, some of his videos um, started looking at calming the chaos, and I found a lot of value to it, even as a promoted company officer already. Um, and then so one of the things that we've talked about in our, you know, in the training division is how do we create um, clarity, a solid foundation, a consistent message across the job. And what I started seeing was his program, um, I believe, helps create that foundation. So, you know, we started talking to him over a year ago and, um, you know, it's kind of progressed to where we're taking a really serious look at bringing Calming the Chaos into Colorado Springs in one way or the other. Um, so I think this was a great opportunity for us to get him on the air. And one, I just I wanted to put a voice and um, a person and a personality behind what his program was um, because he's very down to earth. Um, I think he's got a um, his approach um, is um, um, kind of a simple approach, um, you know, to a complex um, complex situations. So I think we did a good job talking about, we talked about some leadership. Um, we got into kind of what calming the chaos is. Um, we talked about different ways we could implement it as an organization. Um, and I feel that we did a decent job of allowing people to know who he is and potentially, you know, what's coming and why we would want to do that as a, as an organization. Yeah. And I think, you know, we started looking or some sort of product, if you will, um, to help teach people 
um, strategies, tactics, and incident organization. And what I want uh, everybody to know is, is not because our incumbent officers or our current officers um, have a poor skill set, but because those coming out of the officer academy and those becoming acting, those be- people becoming acting officers asked for it. Um, it wasn't something um, that weakness in the organization necessarily drove, but people coming out of those classes were saying, I, I don't feel as prepared as I could be, and I want something more. So we went out and we, we tried to find something more. Now, um, just because we're teaching this, or potentially teaching this in the, in the Acting Officer Academy, doesn't mean that we need to bring it in whole, but it sets that foundation and then we can take the pieces that are most appropriate for, for the fire, our fire department and, and, and implement them um, and integrate them in, in the things that we already do. Right. And I think one of the big things to kind of touch on here is that, you know, his process, Common to Chaos, he does use a little bit of different terminology. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to adopt his terminology. It doesn't mean we're not going to adopt it. Um, you know, his terminology does give a common language, but what we need to do, especially from the training division side, is make sure that we take the foundation of what he's teaching and then apply it to CSFD. So um, I believe the way that we can um, adapt to that is by we get people through the process, but then they come back in after they're done with it, and then they spend time with either the officer development captain or um, people that we've determined on the job to um, – you know, decided to help help us facilitate this where they sit down and and kind of let's bring now let's bring all that information back to what we do. I think that's a great idea. And that's, you know, we'll have a class at the end to help teach people. And it's not this, you know, the classic CMCB, you know, here's the CMCB way. Now here's the CSFD way where you're learning maybe something totally different. It's Here's how. Here's the tools that he provided you, and here's how it can be interwoven in what we already do. So we're not doing anything any different. All right, let's get on to the interview with Anthony Castros. Without further ado, Chief retired from Sac Metro, Anthony Castros. All right, so welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome to the kitchen table. This is our kitchen table here in Colorado Springs. You're very familiar with uh, kitchen tables, uh, not only in the Sacramento metro area, but also all across the country because of what you do uh, for your business. So why don't you take a minute and uh, tell us your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you, how you got to this point. Thanks, Chief. Um, it's an honor to be talking to you, first of all. I've had the privilege of meeting and working with a lot of Colorado Springs members over the years, and it's always a joy. Um, My passion for this job started when I was, like you said, a little kid. Uh, My brothers were 15 and 18 years old when I was born, so I was somewhat of an accident, apparently. My my, uh, dad... uh, Happy accident. My my brother... Yeah, a happy accident. 
my uh, being Greek, you know, you've some people may have heard of a martini baby. That's where your parents have too many martinis and they have a baby when they didn't expect to. That was back in the 50s. So I was an ouzo baby because my family's Greek. So probably my mom oh, and dad after an, after an Easter party back in 68, um, you know, all of a sudden Start. here I come and started These throwing the, plates and opa yeah, yeah exactly threw a plate look go. what happened yeah, yeah so, so <laughs> doesn't take brother, a lot of ouzo uh, no it, it doesn't ouzo's that stuff's oh it's like turpentine it goes down so easy like black licorice but it comes back so bad oh yes so uh, and I, I learned this at eight years old my grandmother used to give it to me at easter parties with a little bit of orange juice anyway how's it called a greek screwdriver anyway so <laughs> So my brother tells me, yeah, well, he was 18 years old. He goes, when, when dad found out mom was pregnant with you, the first words out of his mouth were, woman, how could this happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, this is the 60s. You know, he, he took no ownership whatsoever. Um, but the point is, is I grew up in a firehouse. My brothers were starting their careers uh, when I was three and five years old. I'm, I'm growing up in a firehouse in Carmel, California, where I still live, and um, getting picked up from school from open cab 60s era American LaFrance fire engines that my brothers were driving. And, um, you know, it, it was not uncommon for on a weekend for me to be playing with my my uh, Legos in the house and my brother would run in with a little bell. He'd be ringing a little bell and I knew that meant I had a structure fire in my first two area, which was my backyard. <laughs> and so I had a, I had a, I had an array of Tonka trucks. I had the snorkel that had the connector to the hydrant. I had the, I had the open cab ladder truck. It was it was the early '70s. There was no two out, no writ. You know, it was great. And we had one SOG, <laughs> surround and drown. Everything was you know defensive. So I'd go outside, and sure enough, there'd be a huge column of smoke. My brother would have he takes a bunch of cardboard boxes, newspapers, whatever junk he could oh, find boy. in the yard, and he lights a bonfire. And so I attack <laughs> with my Tonka trucks. So I've got two water supplies in the backyard, one off the kitchen, and one off the dining room. And I got two spigots. I can I can supply two aerial master streams that was my one sog two aerial master streams on the corners and let it burn to the ground so did that about once a week uh in my formative years and then the rest of the time spending at the firehouse so it's kind of brainwashed as a kid it, it was a golden era you know no ems calls in my fire department my my iso rating was like five thousand because i could only generate one Impressive. gpm for six years you know yeah but <laughs> it was fun it's good times so um fast forward to calm the chaos uh I was very fortunate to uh, have been a battalion chief my last 13 years at Sacramento Metro, which is a large 40-station department, much like Colorado Springs, uh, a nice urban department that's got a lot going on. And about a one year into my tenure as a battalion chief, in 2005, I had a, a uh, apartment fire with two children trapped, and their dad was trapped as well. And long story short, they all three died. And I had been a battalion chief for one year. I didn't know what I didn't know. And all I knew was that this was bad and that we could do better. And I started with myself. And I listened to the audio over and over and over. Uh, I went through the the uh, incident review process with everybody. We went through, uh, took pictures, and nothing we said or did could give us any reprieve um, or solace from the fact that we lost two children and their dad. You know, we told each other things like, oh, you know, they were dead before we got there. The fire was too far advanced. It, it flashed over when they went in to do VES. There's nothing we could have done different. And, and none of that, none of that appeased us whatsoever. None of that um, uh, calmed our, our, our passions to do it better. 
Metro Fire at the time was only five years old. So we literally didn't even have standard operating guidelines yet. We still were operating off of historic guidelines from predecessor agencies. So there was a lot of inconsistent operations, at, to say the least. Uh, very differing command and tactical uh, philosophies and uh, techniques. And every battalion chief that was coming up in the system, myself included, had to fend for themselves. Um, this is not a, an indictment of the organization. It's, a, it's an outstanding organization. And I, I actually want to share another story with you about what happened literally this morning on a fire that I was just made aware of. But um, as to kind of my story, that fire, that triple fatal fire, uh, bore in my soul a desire to do it better. And not just for myself and my battalion, but for my organization, for the region, and ultimately the state and anybody else that would listen. And so that's what led to uh, the um, Calm the Chaos DVD series from Fire Engineering and then ultimately the new online program and the classes in FDIC and so forth. And um, we had a chance of redemption, a rare chance at redemption uh, four and a half years later in 2010 when we had a very similar fire come out. Um, it was again a two-story garden style apartment building. It was again a uh, child trapped. And this time uh, we applied everything we had learned and practiced for four and a half years. We, we, four and a half years previous, we didn't know what we didn't know. Now we knew what we didn't know, and we, and we bridged that gap. So we were able to apply everything from VES techniques differently, um, command and tactical decision-making, the NIOSH-5, communications, the use of ICS, um, and uh, attack and rescue coordination tactics, how do, how do we vertical ventilation into it, how to get medical up front, close and personal faster. Uh, how to decentralize and empower your officers to make tactical decisions without bogging down radio traffic. Um, and then we also wrote a lot of SOGs uh, that hadn't been written before. We built a command training center for $200,000. The fire department was crazy enough to let me run and, and, and uh, build a command training center uh, and, and, and uh, create a, an environment for learning. And so this was a tremendous four and a half years of growth. And, and as you could expect, it was a, a, a four and a half years of trial and error. Um, it was a four and a half years of oftentimes pushing against the status quo. And at the time, having been the youngest battalion chief in the organization, you can only imagine how my uh, colleagues, who all had many, many more years of, uh, of seniority than I did in the battalion level, uh, would raise their eyebrows at what I was trying to do. And my message to anybody listening is if you're trying to make change, you can expect to have resistance. That's just the nature of change anywhere in the world. And the fire service is no exception. If anything, we're the, we're the rule. So, but that's how it works. So four and a half years later, we were able to make this amazing rescue. My crews did an amazing job. Um, they all got medals, which is not why we do this, but they deserved it. And a little boy that came out lifeless, not breathing with a seal level of 23 uh, walked out of the hospital seven days later by the grace of God, and it was the fruits of the labor we had put into uh, the training of, of from the previous incident. And so that was the first quantum of solace, not to quote a, a James Bond movie, but that was the first <laughs> little bit of relief um, from the from the guilt that we had felt from four and a half years earlier. But I wasn't satisfied. I, I, I To this day, I go around the country teaching because our team, we want to... Um, we don't want departments to learn from the same mistakes we made the hard way. Um, I found, and Chief, you may be able to attest to this, it's it's not that we make a lot of new mistakes in the fire service. It's just the next generation is making the same old mistakes. 
And even though we do after action reviews and we have incident reviews and there's articles and historical information, somehow it, we still seem to make the same old mistakes. Um, and I see that across the country. Um, being having having um, been fortunate to work with almost 200 fire departments across the country now, um, I see a lot of trends. And one of the trends is is it's it's kind of the same everywhere. And there's the same history, the same meds, the same allergies, if you will, um, with the approach towards incident command. And um, what I love about Colorado Springs is everybody I've ever met or worked with in a class or uh, otherwise has been completely professional, um, very eager to to do the best they can at their job and is very proud of their fire department. So I'm honored to be with you today. I think, um, you know, it's horrible that you and your department had to learn from, you know, that kind of tragedy, but it's really great to see the progression that you've, that you guys have made and the way that you're spreading that out across the nation. I think that one of the big reasons why that I've gravitated to, towards you and your program is because I see the passion, you know, and that's what we have a lot of members on Colorado Springs Fire Department and they're very passionate about um, their position, the growth of, you know, themselves, their teams, the organization, and this need to be better. And, you know, and I get that, I get that from you. So I think that's a big reason why, you know, that I've kind of, you know, really bought into your program aside from just the content. Thank you. Thanks, no, I what, appreciate uh, that a lot, brother. Appreciate that. What, um, through this tragedy, you, you developed Calming the Chaos, but I know you also te teach leadership, and we we talk a lot about on the show, we talk a lot about leadership. How did that, how did that shape you as a leader? Because, again, you were young in the leadership position or the leadership position as far as being a BC, so that kind of that mid-level management. So how did that, that incident and then um, your journey to get to your ultimate goal, how did that shape you as a leader? That uh, that incident, I think, brought out what was already dormant in me from my upbringing. I had mentioned my dad, my uh, mom. My my dad was 52 when I was born. Uh, my mom was 41. My dad was a World War II uh, Pacific Theater infantryman within the Army, a Greek immigrant, uh, and I'm the youngest of five kids with two older brothers who would kick my butt if I did anything out of line. And so I had tremendous role models. Uh, that developed my leadership and my approach to leadership. Not only my brothers but, and dad, but my uncles, my cousins. Everybody was, everybody was a generation or two older than I was. Um, my, you know, my parents were in their 50s. My friends' parents were in their 30s. You know, for example. So, um, I, I was very blessed to have a tremendous amount of just larger-than-life people growing up. One of my cousins was the commander of the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds when I was six years old. And, and I remember going to air shows and standing next to him, next to his plane. And I met, uh, I met one of his pilots back in 1976, uh, then Captain Lloyd Fig Newton. His, his, his call sign was Fig because his last name was Newton, <laughs> so they called him Fig Newton. And, and Fig was the first African-American uh, uh, pilot to be on the Thunderbirds, and my cousin hired him. Um, and, and Fig went on to be a four-star general in the Air Force, and he went on to become um, the, the um, leader of the stealth fighter program and director of all training for the entire United States Air Force. And this is a man I knew from when I was six. And I, and I spoke to him two weeks ago. Uh, and he's not now long since retired, but he's still an iconic member of the Air Force and of the military. And so 
um, he still has that same passion, like you mentioned, Josh. He, he mentioned that he, he's just got that same passion that he had. Here's a guy that f- that flew Phantoms in Vietnam, who was a fighter pilot um, in the '60s and '70s, and who went on to become a four-star general, um, and who still, after years of retirement, is still passionate, who still gets excited about talking about training, about how important training is. Um, he just wrote a book that I would recommend to anybody called um, "Living the Dream," by uh, by Lloyd Fig Newton. Uh, you, you don't read books, Josh. Well, yeah, I bet you right. can find it on Audible, though. I <laughs> yeah, listen right. to a lot. <laughs> I listen to books on my commute. Yeah. Lloyd, Lloyd Fig Newton. Yeah. And so people like that, Chief, are, are who shaped my approach to leadership. And I think what it was was I was given two things that stick out in my mind as a child growing up and, and as a kid and a teenager was, one, learn from your mistakes. Um you don't fail unless you don't learn. If you don't learn from it, you have. Then you. If you don't learn from it, you have failed. If you learn from it and move forward, then you. Then it's not a failure. So learn it. Second thing is own it. Own your stuff. It's not everybody else's fault. It's, oh, it's not. You didn't know. You're not a victim. It's learn from it and own it. And then finally pass it on. And I was given so much. I was given so much from so many people because my brothers were amazing, but I also had all of their coworkers. They were like my uncles, you know, all these amazing officers and and just gr- crazy firehouse personalities growing up. Uh, and and so they all kind of adopted me as the firehouse, you know, rat. I just kind of hung around the firehouse all the time. And, you know, was they, they just knew, hey, when you pull out to go to a call, don't run over Andoni because he's probably sitting under the rig somewhere doing something. Um, and so that formed my passion towards leadership um, and, and seeing my brothers become officers at a young age when I was little, they were captains uh, and see, you know, them progress. And, and I just really, I, I really came to, to have a passion for serving, not leading for my own sake, not leading for my res- resume or my, um, for, for my own edification, but leading to be able to have a great opportunity to serve to have a greater influence and to help make lives better for those we're leading and those we're serving. That was really bore into my soul at an early age. And so I think that's what drives um, how I approach things. And thanks for talking about not just the fire service. You know, I, I appreciate that you kind of started back in your childhood and you talked about people outside of the fire service. Um, oh, you yeah. know, it's, it's the, the fire services. Well, the one that I know anyway, we're making this big push towards um, creating a diverse workforce. Um, you know, and I, and I think with it, along with that, we have to learn how to apply that diversity in the right way. And that diversity comes from our life experience and i think there's so many people out there that have these really awesome impressive backgrounds outside the fire service that bring value to the job and i think that we should be talking about those you know because a lot of people want to yeah a lot of people want to hear about well no tell me about your fire service experience i'm like let's talk about that but you know what got me here was all these other things that are that are coming together so I, i i like how you kind of frame that up going when i was a kid and you know these other experiences that you have I think I think one that comes to mind as you're talking about that is another uh, officer that um, I was a battalion chief. He ended up becoming a captain on the job, and I helped him. Uh, he took one of my classes, and come to find out, he was a high school principal when he uh, joined the fire academy. You know, he he left an entire career in education where he reached pretty much, I would think, the pinnacle, a high school principal. I mean, unless you want to be, you know, political 
an elected uh, position. I think that's pretty high up. He left all that and became a recruit in the academy because he wanted to. But he applied his incredible experience in the education field as a teacher. He, he made him a better officer. You know, one of the things he would talk about is, you know, everyone wants to know why these new you know, kids coming up are asking why. Why do they ask why all the time? And he goes, well, because we've taught them to ask why for the past 20 years. We want them to ask why because we want them to understand why things work, not just what it does, but why it does it, whatever it is. Understand what's behind. It's like we used to call it understand what's behind the pump panel. You know, um, you know, don't just look That's at the gauge and, and, you know, don't just look at what it, the number is supposed to be. Why is it doing that? Why is it not doing that? What's happening behind that pump panel? So you can troubleshoot and under, truly understand hydraulics and, and pump mechanics and so forth. So that was an eye opening moment for me when he said that because we told him to ask why. And he brought that invaluable background that had nothing to do with the fire service into his role as a company officer. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And that, and the discussion about the generation gap just drives me bananas. Like I just like, <laughs> you know, it's like, why do these kids do this? Why do these kids do that? And I go, well, cause we taught them to do that. Just like you said. And it's like the same thing. The Vietnam era guys were saying about me is like, Oh, kids today. Kids, kids today, today. What's, you know, what's got it? I mean, it's every generation has said that. And then we talk about this gap between, you know, our generation and the newer generation. And I go, that's not a gap. Like the gap is like my World War II, World War One era grandfather and his son that was burning his draft card. That's a big gap. Like, <laughs> you know, that that's a big divergence of, you know, what these two people learned to be. Right. You know, and so it's really not as big as we think it's just the next iteration of people going well kids today that's all yeah. that's all it is you yeah, know it's, think, just like, I, it's not that bad i think to your point chief i think i read socrates quote kids today socrates you know yeah exactly yeah and, exactly and, and so it's true and uh, one of my favorite classes at fdic is is leadership and succession planning for the next generation and that it's always packed and it's not because it's me it's because it's such a, in, in a hot topic if you will right now succession planning how do we get through to these kids you know how, oh the the gap between us and them and us and them and this and, and i go and so i bait him i go i go who here is frustrated with the next gen all oh, the hands go up who here has a hard time relating to oh all the hands go up who here i go i go yeah and whose fault is it they're all them i go nope it's yours and they're like ah <laughs> they got, I lock the doors. I chain the doors shut, and then I don't yeah. let them out. We yeah. don't take any breaks, and they're pounding on the doors trying to get out for their first five minutes. And then they then they realize, you know what, this actually might make sense. And and I had a lot of opportunities to live that in the firehouse. Um, you know, <laughs> I mentioned my dad was you know 52 when I was born. Um, I, I, for those of you who know who Archie Bunker was, my dad was like a Greek Archie Bunker. You know, he yeah. was very opinionated. Um, raised during the depression um one of eight kids in a greek immigrant family um very poor he was a coal miner as a kid and then and then fought in world war ii and got two purple hearts he wasn't going to tolerate you having a safe space too well you know and so how do you quote bridge that that mindset you know and so my my native uh, primal native tongue of leadership is my dad that's how i was raised so i'm by sure. nature in, in in 2022, I would not be considered a good leader if I spoke my native tongue all the time, which is impatient, critical, judgmental, you know, all those things that my dad was. And he got away with it because that's just the way it was back then. 
And, you know, and some would say he earned his stripes. He was in World War II. He was raised in the Depression and all that. So nobody argued with him. Um, there, he wasn't politically correct. And if you wanted your opinion, he would give it to you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't. So being raised like that, not even knowing I was raised that way, some of my early struggles in leadership were realizing that everyone, not everyone is like me. Because here I came from a family that was dedicated to service, uh, two brothers who were on the job, a dad who was in the war, and I was a volunteer firefighter for two fire departments at the same time. I was so into it. So when I got my first job, I couldn't believe that that everyone wasn't coming to work for free. I'm like, why Why are you complaining about the fire chief? Why are you complaining about you know this fire engine? Why are you complaining about your pay? I, I, I can't believe I'm getting a paycheck. I get five, I did this for free last week. And so <laughs> I I had a hard time seeing my seeing the world through the lens of my coworkers and other people from other upbringings and, and perspectives. And when I started to become an acting captain or an instructor and those early on leadership opportunities, I got a lot of pushback and I was like, I'm doing something wrong here. And so I learned, I learned from my brothers that, yeah, you can't be us out in the real world. <laughs> yeah. you, you can't be, uh, you know, you can't be all of your Greekness and your passion and your and your and your um, opinions and all this stuff that you have. You can't. It, it's not going to fly. You, you have to consider your audience and adjust your your um, your sales, if you will. So I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. Do you think that it was when you had those successes in leadership, you know, when you learned that by changing your style, like you're, I'm sure you're not changing who you are, but you're changing no. your approach and changing your style. Yeah. When you started seeing those successes, is that kind of what drove you down the path of like the leadership side of what you do of kind of putting that on paper and creating Absolutely. a system and approach? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. Uh, and, and it was like one of those things where like, whoa, okay, I just actually learned something and it actually changed something and it actually worked. Wow. And so as a young acting captain, I was in a, I was in a laboratory of opportunity. I mean, I was, I was bumping around the fire department, different stations, different crews all the time. I was, I was living out of a suitcase with an acting captain helmet. So I had to learn how to quickly get along with crews, but also be a responsible company officer. I, I would tell people like an acting captain, there's no such thing as acting gravity and acting fire and acting thermodynamics. Uh, everything's real. It doesn't matter if you're an acting officer that day. And so you're either effective or you're not. And so I had to rapidly uh, learn and, and through trial and error uh, better ways to approach people and approach crews, many of whom most of the time, uh, if not all the time, were much more senior than I was. So I was already coming in at a disadvantage, if you will, um, by I'm younger um, they don't know me. As we went through mergers, there's more and more people that didn't know who I was, um, and I didn't know the first two areas. I mean, there were some stations I'd walk into. I'd never been to the station before. I didn't know the crew from Adam, and I'm 28 years old, and they're in their 50s, and, and I'm their captain. And so that was a tremendous uh, opportunity, and I loved it. So like you said, I, I wrote it down. I kept a log. I kept a journal, and I, and I started applying it. Uh, and, and, and finding what worked and what didn't. And that's what started to formulate the, the foundation of my curriculum that I'm teaching. Yeah, it, um, 
a couple of things that you said, you know, one is you're moving around, you're going to different places. I, I can also see pros in that too, because, yeah. you know, when we grow up on the same fire department and people knew us when we were, you know, brand new on the job, and then all of a sudden they know us now, a lot of times we can look like the same person, but, you know, we need to recognize we've been through this many years of change and, and you know, to be able to. So I think that a lot of times for up and coming officers, it's hard for them to make that switch. Whereas when you go to a new company and when you're working for people that may not know who you used to be and who you've become, right. you become, know, where sometimes that could be easier. But I could still see how it would be hard when you're the when you're the young one and you've got these fifty year old, you know, people that have been on well, the job for a long time. Well it's really funny because I had an advantage having had older brothers, uncles, cousins. I, I spoke old guy really well. I was fluent in old guy. <laughs> yeah. And so I'd walk in as this 28-year-old whippersnapper acting captain talking to a couple of 53-year-olds. And I, had, I spoke their language. I spoke their dialect because I was raised by them. I was raised by my brothers, by my cousins and uncles and my dad and everybody. So, I mean, it, it was funny because as a new battalion chief, I was literally the youngest member of my battalion. There was like 43 members of our battalion when I got promoted to battalion chief. I was the youngest battalion chief in the department, and I was the youngest individual member of the battalion. So out of 43 firefighters, captains, engineers, and me, I was the youngest person by a mile. We're talking Vietnam veteran era, guys. I mean, and and, and so my first 30 days, I just walked around and listened and drank coffee and said hi and, and heard what they had to say and ran some calls, ran some fires and, and hung out, got a lay of the land and did a lot of listening. And one of my favorite questions I got was from an older guy. They were all older guys. He looks at me, he goes, we're at the kitchen table having coffee. And he goes, so what do you think of old guys? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, oh man, this that is sounds loaded. Question. Yeah, it was it was great. And I go, I go, well, Walter, I go, I'm really glad you asked. I said, I love old guys, Walter. I said, I'll tell you why. I was raised by old guys. I speak fluent old guy. I said, my dad was 52 when I was born. My brothers were 18 and 15 years older than me when I was born, and they're still 15 and 18 years older than me, and they don't let me forget it. And I said, um, I was raised by uncles, cousins, and everybody else. And I really actually relate to and more comfortable with people who, who are a lot older than me. So I'm, I'm at home. And he looks at me and goes, okay, cool. And, and it, We're good uh, now. Yeah. yeah, and it proved to be true. It was the most senior battalion in the whole department. Um, Metro Fire has five battalions on, you know, three shifts, five battalions each. And I landed in the saltiest, oldest of all 15 permutations. I landed in the saltiest, oldest bunch that had worked together the longest and was the busiest battalion. And I loved it. And I, I, I just did a cannonball right into it. And um, they they couldn't have been more gracious. And I think I like to think part of it was because not only were they great people, but they also saw that I was humble and wanted to learn from them as much as as be of service to them. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. A light bulb just turned on for me, too. So I've wondered, you know, over some time, like, why? Um, I feel like I can communicate pretty well with my boss who's sitting right next to me now. Yeah. And I realize you just made me understand, like, I speak old guy. He speaks and so, old guy, and I'm so the one he, now. So he understands what I'm saying because he falls into the old category. He slipped away. He had a birthday not too long ago. I did. And instead of being here, he slips out of town and goes and has his birthday, yep. you know, instead of being here. So I, it's, That's called wisdom. Well, you know, <laughs> it's called, I don't know if this is going to sound coach. I call it cheating. I don't know if this is going to sound coach if you're going to edit this out. But I, like I used to say, I love the smell of piss and bang gay in the morning but that's just me yeah, yeah. you know but i'm i'm kind of the same way i, I was um, 
my mother's side of the family is Italian. Oh, yeah. And so very, you know, Mediterranean, same as Greek, you know. Yep. So there's a definite hierarchy, right? You've got my grandmother, who's the matriarch of the family. Exactly. And very, very hard woman. Yeah. Um, you know, again, Depression era, all the things that you talked about uh, and earned her stripes, right? So she's the one that, that made the rules and you went by those rules. But, yep. you know, uncle's in the fire service, grandfather in the fire service. Um, I just love to sit and listen to stories. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think what I learned from that is to sit back and, and how much you can you can learn by listening. And so I'm very much a person now that will sit on the periphery of a room and try to figure out where I fit in. Yeah. Um, and learn and listen to the people so I know how to build relationships with them so I can, you know, exactly. work with them better. I can uh, be a better leader with them and for them. Um, so I, I can, I can I completely identify what you're talking about. That's exactly how I feel. I, um, the way you described, you know, just getting to know people hanging out in the periphery and how can I better serve this person and getting to know them. And I, I, I always, I, I come to find out that, you know, if a, if a firefighter gets a new tool and he or she doesn't know how to use it and hasn't been trained, then they're going to throw it in the back of the compartment. You're never going to see it. It won't even come out of the box and they'll say, yeah, oh, that's stupid. Whatever. We don't use that. It's, we don't need it. And when it comes to leadership, your people are your tools, but they're human beings that require a tremendous amount more care and maintenance and time and effort and sincerity uh, from their boss. And you can't shortcut that. And so one size does not fit all. And just like you can't put orange juice in a chainsaw, you, you can't treat everybody the same and put the same fuel in every firefighter that you have in your company or in your battalion and expect them to perform the same. And the only way to know what their fuel mixture is is to get to know them. And the only way to get to know them is to listen and care sincerely about them instead of looking at them as just, you know, your lemmings to get your work done and make you look good. And that was one of the things that I hated about, I think, the converging philosophy of leadership that I had to contend with at times in the fire service was, oh, I'm here to make my boss look good. I go, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to serve the public <laughs> and I'm yeah. here, you know, I'm here to serve the public and take care of my, my crew. I'm take care of my boss, but I'm not here to make him look good. I'm, I'm here to, to serve the public and take care of my boss and my crew. Um, and so that make my boss look good mentality was really, I think, rooted in that old school um, pyramid uh, model of the boss is at the top and everyone's below the boss. And as we all know, the new model is flipped where the boss is at the bottom and everybody else is, and the boss is supporting everybody. And every model has to remember that we have somebody that we're serving, um, whether it's, you know, the public or another uh, member of our department. But um, I think what you said is, is critical, that you can't do any of that unless you get to know who you're leading. And that takes humility, it takes time, it takes effort, and it takes a servant's heart. That's yep. very well said. I, I, I think the other, you know, the other side of that, too, is, you know, understanding that, you know, when you say um, my job is to make my boss look good, it's like, no, you have a specific <laughs> job. And if you don't perform that job, then you're not playing your role on the team. I mean, this is all about teamwork. And right. and if, if you're not doing your your specific function, then somebody else is going to have to pick up your slack. Right. And, and a derivative, a derivative problem on top of what you just said of that mindset is if I'm here to look, make my boss look good, then I'm missing the mission 
um, I'm worried about kissing his or her ass. And um, that really changes my whole mental paradigm. And I've seen that happen. I've seen people rise through the ranks in fire departments who they were there to make their boss look good, which meant what? Upward mobility for them. And so that's and that's what they expected of the people below them. You're here to make me look good because if I'm here to make my boss look good, then you're here as one of my my little lemmings to make me look good. And that mindset is just so distorted in my mind. It's a very political mindset instead of a mission based mindset. Yeah, and, I, and I like what you're saying. And I'm, I'm going to draw Josh into this. I know we want to get to some of the other things here first, but I want to I want to talk to you about um, talk about your why, you know, and, and living with purpose. And, and Josh, maybe you want to take over here because I know you're very passionate about that. But it seems like what you're talking about here is living, uh, understanding your why and, and living with purpose. So I'll kick it over to Josh to kind of fill in the blanks a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think what I've noticed over the years is I've been through a lot of different processes that have been geared towards helping me discover what my purpose is. And the more that I've dialed that purpose in and then been able to take my purpose and tie it to the mission, vision, values of the organization, the more successful I feel like I've been. So it has yeah. been something very important. And, you know, and, and my why is is changed over the years that I've been working on it, but I've got it, you know, kind of dialed in right now. And it's made Good. a big difference in my life. Awesome. So that's, so when you talk about your why and your purpose, it's for your whole life, not just your professional yes. life. Um, yes. And, and so, and sorry to interrupt you, Chief, I just, but just to kind of add to that, it is, it is, it's my, it, it's life purpose, but it also directly relates to what I do here on the sure. fire department. But, you know, a lot of what we do here on the fire department is, is similar to the way that we interact with our families. And when you combine right. those two and you have um, kind of a direction, a purpose, and you can tie it to the organization, you know, I think that that's where that high performance employee begins to, you know, um, improve shine become better completely under, uh, agree man this is exciting i'm loving this conversation fellas i mean because because to me purpose-driven living is 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 the only way to live it's without that there is no living it's just existing and um i think human beings whether they know it or not desire uh, several things but i think one of them is purpose and one of them is hope and if you always have a purpose, you know why you're everything you do. You know why you're doing it, why it's important, and why to and 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 it gives it significance to your day and to your time and to your existence. And everything you do is from that compass heading. Then you're always going to have a good day, even if you don't meet all of your goals and objectives. You're at least your effort was towards that purpose. That was and it's and I'm sure for you, Josh, it's it's greater than yourself. You know, like you said, it's serving. It's for others. And that's the, the, the part. And then the hope comes in from not giving up, just that there's always going to be another opportunity, that I'm not going to give up, that there's another way around this. Um, and, and you know, um, sometimes it feels hopeless in this job, both politically, uh, physically, emotionally. Uh, when you're on this job long enough, um, you know, there's times where it can feel hopeless on, an, on a particular call, on a, in a particular shift, or in a particular season. But when you have that purpose that that gets you through those um, moments of hopelessness and, and you find the hope to gravitate and grab bound to again to, to stay on the course yeah and and those are things what you're talking about those are things that you can actually keep you yeah. know you can keep purpose you can keep hope um, the idea of like hey I'm not I, I have to come into work every single day and be happy I mean that's not reality 
You right. know, the reality is every day I can I can come into work and have purpose. I can come in to um, have hope. I can um, I can sacrifice, um, and then within that, there's going to be bits of joy. There's going to be bits of satisfaction. But I have to understand that joy and satisfaction are things that I can't keep. Those are things that. I get it, like satisfaction. It's like I've worked really hard for promotion, and I raised my I raised my hand, and I got sworn in. I was very satisfied. Guess what? As soon as that was over, that satisfaction was gone, and I was on to the next thing. Right. But the purpose remained. Right. The hope is right. still there. Right. And I th- I think when you look at the idea of job fulfillment, you know, it's really that understanding of what you have control over, what you can keep. Like these are mine. I can keep these. Right. But there's other things out there like joy that I can't keep that. But in the end, you, you kind of landed this part of this, uh, excuse me, this point of job fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. Outstanding. Do, do you think joy is from within or do you think it's from, from, or it's circumstantial? Man, that's a really, I've never, I've never had it asked to me that way. Um, I would, I would think it's a combination, but I would think a lot of it is from within. Um, I would agree. Yeah, I feel like, you know, what is going to give me joy is not going to give you joy. So that external factor is, um, you know, it can be kind of a motivator to joy, but I have to be able to um, accept that and and go, okay, yes, this is something that gives me joy. Right. Uh, But like if. You know what gives me joy? My wife looks at those things and she's like, "Okay, that I'm, I'm never going to do that." You know, so, I guess I guess I would lean to your question. I guess I would lean to the individual side. Yeah, I, well, it's obviously individual. I just I found that joy is internal. Um, it's not circumstantial. Internal. I think ha- happiness is circumstantial. Happiness comes and goes. You know, um, was I per- too ha- was I very happy earlier this week when I was writhing with COVID <laughs> and a fever? <laughs> no, no. Can't but even tell I, that you were. Yeah. But did I have joy in my heart that I have an amazing wife and two amazing daughters and I love what I do. I love my life and I, I, I have faith and I, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you guys today and all. Yeah. And, and so, um, I think firefighters, not everybody, and it's certainly I'm not pointing fingers at, at anybody, uh, in Colorado Springs by any means. I just, in general, I think firefighters tend to, um, confused joy and happiness that that you're going to have a lot of sad moments and, and disappointing moments and frustrating moments in this job but the joy of firefighting and being a firefighter is a 30-year process it's 30 years long it's it it could be i'm still feeling it and, and i'm not and i'm it's because i'm teaching but i i guarantee you when i hang it up teaching i'm still going to have memories that are going to fill me with joy i'm going to still be able to talk about it when i see a fire engine going down the street i'm going to get joy from that and um i think that Today's world, when we talk about the generations like Chief was talking about, I think one of the things that is different about, about you know, when we talk generations is technology. And technology has given a distorted sense of happiness, fulfillment, joy, time. Uh, it's instant gratification. Um, the, the need and the, the process of working hard, slow, long, arduous days, months, weeks, years, whatever it is to accomplish a goal. Um, to do it in a way in which only that process of hard work and time can yield that kind of joy that comes with it, um, I think is is it's a it's a loss. It's lost on this, and I don't blame the generation. I blame the technology. And I think when you look at the world and you can compare yourself to everybody around you instantly, and see how inadequate you are, and then you 
somehow need to at, at a formative age, I'm talking teen years, you know, um, you have to all of a sudden create uh, an image to compete with what is with smoke and mirrors that you think is reality. That sets people up for a very, very um, rough road of disappointment in their life. And yeah, so I, does that make sense? It does. Yeah, and not to bring this down a, a rabbit hole, but we the the idea of a topic of resiliency comes up a lot on on this podcast. Okay. And you you touched on a few things right there. You know, if when you look at before technology, when the to accomplish something, it took a lot. You know, you had right. to, you couldn't just get online and go to Amazon and, and <laughs> right. two hours later something shows up at your door. It's like right. you know, I think the the life that we society that we used to live allowed for um, a creation, um, some you know, a higher level of resiliency. And yep. you might have hit on a key thing right there. It's like the life that we live today when everything is is basically push a button and it happens. We're getting away from that, you know, that um, resiliency that is kind of beat was beaten into us, you know, at, in, in a different time. Yeah. Resiliency, um, fortitude. Uh, loyalty, um, loyalty to your family, to your team, to your career, to your job, to your employer, to what have you, to your fire department. Um, I, I've I've kind of reflected, and I, I think the fire service over time, and this is nobody's fault. I'm not blaming anybody or pointing fingers even at the current generation. I'm just because of technology, because of of the way things have evolved. I think that the fire service used to be a calling, um, and then it became a career. And then it became a job, and now for some, it's 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 a trial that they may or may not continue with. It's it's they're trying it out. It's yeah. you know it's it's a yeah it's uh, a moment it, in time. It's really. a moment in time. It's like yeah, I'll try this out for a couple of years, see how it works out. And yeah. and so you're finding like in California, a lot less firefighters are going on strike teams, a lot less firefighters are signing up for overtime, a lot less firefighters are taking play uh, taking part in. Um, off-duty activities and or contributing to the organization unless they're getting paid overtime or um, or they can go on duty. Uh, when I was coming up, I'm sure the same with both of you, a lot of our listeners, um, I went to a lot of classes on my own time, on my own dime. I took time off. I spent my own money. I certainly as hell didn't ask to be paid overtime to go sit in a classroom. And now it's, well, am I getting paid to be there? Am I getting overtime? Why do I need to go? Um, and it's not just the fire service. I, I, I had a, my niece, she's old school. She's 30 years old, but she's old school because of my sister raised her. And she is a manager at, as a, uh, um, physical therapy facility. And one of the, one of the very young, uh, technicians there looked at her one day and said, why do you work so hard? <laughs> just unsolicited. She goes, what do you mean? Why do I work? Well, why do you work so hard? It's not like you're getting paid extra. Do you, you don't get paid more just to work hard. Do you? She's like, no. So why do you work so hard? <laughs> She's like, is that is, is that, sorry to interrupt. Is that a shift in purpose? Is that a shift in the why in the generations? Like, um, I think the younger generation gets more fulfillment in life by doing things externally. For example, like a lot of our guys, you know, they want to go camping, they want to go snowboarding, they want to enjoy their time off. So their purpose or their why is. You know, they use the job to do the other things that they enjoy even more, you know, right. to make their life more fulfilling. And um, so it's a different perspective. Again, it's that generational thing. And how in the fire service do we adapt 
not only how we teach them to be firefighters, but how we retain them as firefighters and recruit exactly. them as firefighters based on their perception and their why and their purpose. And that's that's the that's the big question right now. That's exactly it. And I think that firefighters have always worked to play. I mean, we, that's what we do. We always have gone fishing and gone on camping trips and and you know all gone and helped somebody pour a driveway or build a house or work on their day off on another job. It's not about the fire services has to be the be all end all. It's about do you do you have joy in this job? Do you, while you are here, do you have joy in it? Are you proud of it? Are you do you see it as a as a uh, an important part of your life, or is it just a job? Is do you see it as something that you can be proud of? Um, it's not that who you are; it's what you do. But is it something that you are proud of, and 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 it helps give you some purpose? Not your whole purpose, but do you are you fulfilled while you're here, or are you just looking at what you can do tomorrow and get off work? And yeah, I think part could- of I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chief. Well, I was just going to say, I think part of the reason why we're seeing less and less folks who are um, committed, if you will, to the fire service, like maybe our predecessors or their predecessors, is not because it's not them at all. It's technology because they're the fire today's fire department has to compete with the internet and with an iPhone and with short attention span. And if I'm not going to fires every five seconds, um, I'm going to. Um, the, the iPhone's going to win. Sorry. And if on well, my day off, I'm going to do motocross. I'm going to go skydiving. I'm going to go mountain climbing. I mean, stuff that you would never do as a probationary firefighter in a million years because you wouldn't want to get hurt. Probies are doing practically in the academy still. They're going to go mountain biking. They're going to go rock climbing. They're going to go skydiving. They're going to do stuff that puts them in the hole with sick leave or gets them let go. And they don't even think twice about it. And it's because... The purpose isn't the fire service. The purpose is the adrenaline. It's the purpose is the fun is the fix. It's that release. It's that, but it comes down to purpose. It comes down to significance. And if the fire department doesn't give them enough significance and purpose of of being part of something important, not the whole purpose of living, but being part of something important, if they don't get that in pretty quick order, they're going to look elsewhere. And, And so that's why they're not going to sign up for strike teams. They're not going to sign up for overtime. They're not going to go out the extra mile because why should I? When I'm there, it's boring. I'm not getting what I need or what that what that feeling I need of significance. And if you're trying to compete with the internet and iPhones and and YouTube and all this stuff, social media, you have to have strong ass leadership, <laughs> leadership that can bring value to the workplace on any given day. Leadership that can engage these new firefighters and make them want to come back and want to sign up for overtime and know that they're part of something special and feel like they're part of something special, feel like they're they're part of something significant. And without that leadership uh, in the firehouse, in the battalion, uh, day in and day out, touching these kids, they're going to go somewhere else to find it because there's lots of options on that phone. Yeah, and you just put together like a purpose for you know a leader out there, the the leader that is um, having um, trouble getting their crew engaged, or you know kind of getting them to want to stay on the job or promote. You know, is just okay. Like you just put it into words. It's like okay, this is you know I need to be working on these things. I need to make this one of my priorities in the day is um, being that motivator for those up and coming people. Um, I was kind of wondering, you know, like when you when you mentioned technology. Um, and you mentioned classes and things like that, you know, um, 
20 years ago, the information wasn't at your fingertips. And so it was a big deal when you found a class or when you found something that's like, oh, I can go grab onto this and, and I can learn from this. And now it's easy, right? You just get on your you use your thumbs and you find whatever you want. I wonder if that's, you know, created some of that change. Do I, now it's just so easy that people are like, oh, I don't need to go to this class. I can find it somewhere else. Oh, I, um, I would agree with 100%. I, why, why should I go? Which means what? Hmm, take time off. Okay, time off for my family. Maybe have to drive or fly somewhere, which means a plane ticket, hotel, uh, miss some overtime. Why should I do that when I can just sit in the recliner at work and, and get the same certification? Now, that said... That said, hands-on training is still the most popular stuff at FDIC. It's still the most popular and engaging training uh, in the fire service. We just sometimes need to be reminded of that. And that comes back to leadership. So, for example, we talked about Calm the Chaos. Calm the Chaos Online is, is, is a really good foundation. And it's, it's, we made it as engaging and realistic and, um, and uh, relevant as possible. So people are like, wow, this is great. But it doesn't replace when we come into town and actually do hands-on training evolutions. I mean, we were like, for example, the last one we did was in Omaha, Nebraska, and we had some of the oldest, saltiest chiefs in that class, and they were they had their SCBAs on, their turnouts on, their helmets on, and they were going nuts. They were having so much fun, and they're like, "Oh, this is the greatest! This is so great!" And it was because it was hands-on, and it wasn't about crawling down a hallway 100 feet, you know, with a with a two and a half. It was about command and tactical training. So. While it was physically demanding, it was focused on the tactical and strategic levels. Um, but it was still, it still got a good sweat going. It still got, got them sucking their bottles. And it still, um, there was smoke. There was uh, people on air, people pulling hose lines. And it was realistic. And, and we were having mannequins coming out of windows. And, and it was all realistic. And so those endorphins and that adrenaline got kicked in, which you're not going to get on an iPhone. <laughs> it's just not going to happen on the laptop. And they came away just so fired up and so eager to pass it on to the rest of the department. Uh, that's not going to happen after an online class. The best you'll get is, oh, that was a really good class. Oh, yeah, you should try it. Okay, cool. What's for dinner? But when, but, but when they go through an uh, hands-on training, it's, it's, it changes you physiologically. And it makes you want more. And it makes you want to get your friends to come along. And that's, that's something that, you know, we could blame it on COVID, but we were traveling right in the height of COVID. We were going to departments all over the country and still doing it. And uh, it's just where there's a will, there's a way. You know, one department in Washington State outside of Seattle, three departments got together. And this was right at the height of the pandemic. It was like they had to get a gubernatorial declaration that this training was okay. That's how, that's how big it was in, in this Washington area of Seattle. Um, they had to get a, a big 5,000-square-foot church auditorium. They had an incident action plan. They had... They had the three different departments come in from three different entry points um, so that there wasn't cross-contamination. They all had their own bathrooms. Um, there was hand-washing, temperatures, check-ins, you know, everything. And and we didn't have one transmission in that whole class, not even during the hands-on. For five days, hands-on training, classroom time, on the grinder, in turnouts, SCBAs, not one person got COVID. And this is the height of the pandemic. And it was because they had the wherewithal and the passion to make it happen. They had a lot of lot of reasons they could have thrown their hands up and said, well, it's too hard. The governor wants a, we need a gubernatorial declaration. We're not going to get that. Or oh, we can't find a facility big enough for, oh, the chiefs are worried everyone's going to get sick. We can't do it. They overcame every obstacle. Uh, and it was leadership. They just persevered. And that's, you don't get that online. Can I, can I tell you an amazing story? Yes. Please do. 
So one of my instructors is a current active battalion chief in my former department, Sacramento Metro. And um, he called me this morning or texted me uh, excited about a fire that they had this morning about 3.45 in the morning, if I'm not mistaken. And it ended up being initially a one-engine response to assist law enforcement. And so they get on scene and there's a bunch of uh, law enforcement vehicles. They don't can't really get close to the apartment complex in question. Um, they think it might be a medical aid. They're just there for law enforcement assist. Turns out uh, a, a male, I don't know if this was the estranged father or, or boyfriend or husband, I don't know, but it turns out an estranged male took a child, I don't know the age, um, small child hostage with a knife in an apartment and lit it on fire. Um, the captain apparently um, escalated the incident to a full alarm appropriately, but because their engine was, and the fire was now pouring out of the apartment, getting into the apartment above, getting into the attic, rapidly escalating. Meanwhile, there's a a, a perpetrator with a hostage, a child, in the back behind this fire, allegedly in the bathroom. Well, they don't have all the units on scene, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm, I'm probably getting way ahead of this before it's even out, so forgive me. But I had to share it. Um, so my understanding is is the captain made the, made the tactical command decision to go into the adjacent apartment. And they breached the wall, the common wall between the bathrooms and pulled out the now unconscious perpetrator and child. He's still clutching the child with a knife to their throat, unconscious, pulls them through the smoke, out of the smoky bed, uh, bathroom. They're both unconscious. And by now, crews are arriving. They're fighting fire and supporting them. And uh, the two were transported and are going to live. That is awesome. You know, I mean, it, it, it's that um, uh, kind of outside-the-box thinking, right? It's because oh, we're not... It, it's we're not pulling up to the same incident every time you know that's you know one of the great benefits of this job is every day is a little bit different but in this day this world that we're living in right now it's getting so much more complex and those decisions are getting uh, much more challenging and for that for that officer to be able to come up with that and go hey we're going to do this and breach this wall i mean what, what that's just, just awesome that's just rock yeah. star right there rock star it is. i mean that's that's yeah. medal of valor stuff and that's just just to do that and and what's cool is he came up into the system as what we call a single role paramedic he was part of just an ems employee on an ambulance without being part of the fireside he had to work his way up promote into the academy go through the fire academy worked so we have the ranks is now a captain and made this made this up uh, tactical decision to save two lives today in a very very dynamic precarious situation i mean it was bad enough where the cops wanted to come in and help them with their gas masks <laughs> and they said no it's too hot <laughs> you're gonna good. die you guys will yeah. die if you come in let us do our job and but they didn't have you know the ideal conditions they didn't have all the support they needed when they were doing this until the cavalry arrived but uh just just awesome yeah and that's you know we had one similar to that just recently not not to that extreme and we you know not going through the bathroom but pd arrives to a barricade and all of a sudden the house is on fire yep. you know so we're there for a medical assist and you know <laughs> now we're calling full alarms and you know cops are trying to go in and pull this guy out and shots are fired and, and it's just you're right it's just so chaotic and so dynamic um and our folks are you know 
having to face this on a daily basis. So if we can pro- help provide them the structure and, and the tools they That's need it. to manage these incidents, then then everybody's better off. Well, and, um, and I want to take it. Oh, sorry. Go I was going to say, and, and you know, do you ever remember John and Roy pulling up to that one? <laughs> no, <never. laughs> I don't remember John and Roy never. pulling up to that one. And 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 like you said, it's a derivative of leadership and command and tactical decision making on the fire. It's just it's all converges to make that officer who he was to do that what he did. You know, it's it's powerful. I just want to take a second, and you know, we've been going at it. Uh, I'm looking at the clock here, an hour and forty minutes. So we appreciate you, <laughs> gi- you know, <laughs> so giving fast. of your time. Yeah, so giving of your time. Um, we certainly didn't expect that, but we certainly do appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Thanks for your time, and 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 thanks for you know helping Josh and I kind of navigate these waters of of trying to provide our newest officers some foundational pieces and consistent training that um, we haven't had before but they're certainly asking for um, Josh you have anything yeah absolutely I, I I mean I think you know this I think I've told you this but um, I want to say um, I appreciate obviously your passion your professionalism um, the mentorship that you've given me and and the friendship that I think that you know I've been able to create with you um, over the last year or so that we that we've been working through some of this stuff together so Thank you, thank you, thank you for um, all of those things and then coming on the podcast with us today. Um, it's meant a lot to me. Um, I've, you've said a lot of things that I need a little bit of time to digest. So I appreciate you giving, you know, kind of giving your perspective and insight. Thank you, thank you very much, brother. It's, uh, it's an honor to be with, with both of you. Um, uh, tremendous respect. I've enjoyed talking to you both over the past year plus. Um, I know Colorado Springs is a great organization and in good hands, and uh, I love talking about this stuff. So thank you for the opportunity. It's a blessing. Uh, For anybody listening at the kitchen table, uh, if you want more info, just visit us at trainfirefighters.com and uh, give us a shot if you need any uh, training uh, that we can help you individually. Yeah, and it's not just calming the chaos either, is it? What what are some of the other things on that website? Uh, Mastering uh, the Fire Service Assessment Center. That's that was our really first major class. We have a book, second edition out from Fire Engineering by the same name, Mastering the Fire Service Assessment Center. So that's available online now. It it comes with uh, a very thorough, comprehensive course, interactive, uh, self-paced, and it also comes with the book, which is um, a huge benefit. The ebook, um, and then the Calm the Chaos course. We do leadership, team building. We do individual coaching. Um, and um, we do webinars that are free with the uh, assessment center class too for folks so they get more interaction. Um, so a lot going on, uh, a lot of leadership and team building and risk management stuff. It all surrounds uh, officer development because uh, we're, needing, we're needing officers. And what I appreciate about the two of you gentlemen is your passion for that. I think I mentioned it to you over a year ago when we were talking that um, you know, one of the benefits of doing this, I get to see a lot of different departments and meet a lot of great people. And um, your passion and your awareness to the connectivity of officer development and leadership and command and tactics and the, the whole continuum is very, very uh, refreshing because not everybody gets that. And you two definitely get that. So Colorado Springs is fortunate to have you both. So thank you for your time today. It's been great. Yeah, I Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good day. And right, we'll guys. talk to you soon. Thanks. Yep. Okay. Bye-bye.
Okay, welcome back everybody. That was our interview with Anthony Castros, retired battalion chief, uh, SAC Metro Fire Department. What'd you think? Interesting conversation. Uh, very passionate about what he does. Uh, very insightful about um, not only um, the products he produced, he produces, but also um, just things in general, just life in general and the fire service and, you know, great stories and histories. Oh, I think it's great. Um, I was looking forward to this interview just because we've been, um, you know, we, we've been talking with him for a long time and, and to get him on the air was really great. And I think that when you, you know, when we did this interview, he does a good job of basically tying his whole self to kind of what he does. You know, I mentioned what his background was at the beginning from, you know, 30 years working his way up through battalion chief and, you know, a bachelor's in business and focus on human resources. And you can tell that he's very people oriented. Um, and I think that, um, you know, he is passionate. Um, when we've talked off the air or on the air, you know, it, it, to me, I feel like he, you know, he, tr he does truly care about people and he cares about the job. And, and it's just really great to get people on the air that want to, you know, kind of want to keep giving to, you know, what I feel is the same direction that we're trying to go. Sure. Um, I found it interesting that, uh, for example, um, he talked about a traumatic fire where they had some fatalities in it, and he and other officers recognized they could have been better. Mm -hmm. They could have done better, and that kind of drove um, uh, him and them into teaching others, you know, calming the chaos, leadership, that type of thing. You know, if you look back to in, into our fire department and um, in our conversation with Jose and a couple other people, you know, there was a fatality fire where they recognized that they need to be better, you know, and, and though Jose maybe didn't pick it up, you know, and run with it himself specifically, he empowered people that did have that passion and that energy and that drive, uh, for example, for example, Ryan Royal into creating, um, you know, the forcible entry program and creating the forcible entry skills that we have here today. Yeah. Um, so Captain Anderson and I were just in a class last week up in Pooter. It was the um, live fire certification class for 1403. And one of the instructors said something very simple, but it really, it meant a lot to me when he said it. He goes, this document, 1403, which is the NFPA for um, live fires, um, he goes, this document was written in blood. And when he said that, it just, I could feel it. And um, I think that you look at a lot of what we do in the fire service, a lot of what we do is written in blood, whether it's, um, you know, um, NFPA standards or whether it's um, operational procedures manual or, you know, policies and procedures, you know, all those things came from some kind of consequence. And it really made me think that if, you know, we lost blood over this as an industry, we like we need to own these things and we need to um, really use these to empower us to become better and you know it's kind of the same thing that he's talking about right they lost they had um, you know fatality fire where people lost their lives and they recognized that they could do better and they did something about it so I feel like like they did their part or within our job like you're talking about we are you know there's people out there that are learning these lessons and turning them into something positive. Well, and I, and I hope people don't wait 
you know, for those, uh, you know, negative incidents or tragedy fires to recognize that they're not good at something, you know, be introspective and, and look inside yourself and, and determine what your weaknesses are and work on them. Yeah, you may not, you know, move a, a fire department to change its culture or you may not, you know, uh, you know, significantly impact the region or the state or the United States as a whole, but, uh, but you can, you know, significantly impact yourself, right, and make a positive impact on your abilities to do your job, which could have a direct impact on, you know, saving a citizen's life or, or uh, making a positive impact somewhere else. I think um, what makes me feel like we're headed in a good direction is, with this is, you know, you look back 20 years ago and we went to a structure fire, the fire went out, nobody got hurt and everybody high-fived in the street. Maybe we didn't high five because we knew that that wasn't yeah. you know, that wasn't a good perception. But that was it was like, hey, the fire went out. We did a great job, and um, we had a company officer that we were talking to not too long ago. That um, after a fire, they did a quick hot wash on it, and the fire went out. Nobody got hurt, but um, they said that there was this kind of this feeling where nobody was high fiving. Nobody was like, we did a great job, and everybody was kind of standing around like we could have done better. And and it wasn't that anything went significantly wrong, but I think we've just moved into this place where people are operating very efficiently on the fire. And when it's not as efficient as we like it, we're willing to kind of accept that and go, okay, hold on, let's talk about, you know, how we could have done this better. So I do feel like we're headed in the right direction. Yeah, and I think so. And I, I think we're creating creating a work environment where it's okay to make mistakes. We're not going to be perfect all the time, if if at all. Um, every every incident, every fire that I've been on, I can learn something from. Um, you know, and if you look at some of the projects that I've been involved in, such as you know responding to the interface with the IAFF, um, adoption of the Green Book for CSFD, I mean that that's all born out of Waldo Canyon and Black Forest and that experience and and the recognition that. Um, something inside of myself could have been could have been done better i could have been more prepared uh, because i didn't feel like um, maybe the training in the past focused on the things that we needed to focus on but that's that was okay because we were doing the best we can with what we knew and and what we thought the real risk was but when it when it the actual event happened i saw those shortcomings we saw those shortcomings um, and it was a group of us um, that got together to create the Urban Task Force Leader class, to reach out to, the, you know, our regional partners to deliver that class and look for something better so we could get better to where um, you look at the way we operate now as companies when you look at the Bear Creek Fire, for example, those companies showed up and did bump and rum tactics and probably didn't even know they were doing them. But that's, you know, that raised the level and it was that group of people at that incident Waldo Canyon, uh, recognizing that, you know, we can do better here and we have to do better and here's how we're going to do this. And we as a group decided to, you know, you know, provide that education and, and really everybody grabbed onto it and um, it's just become a standard for us now. Yep. A, if you, and I've said this before, but what what's really interesting to me is a bunch of years back we came up with 
you know, a group of, of people came up with this new mission statement and vision statement. And to see this kind of come, the vision of, of Colorado Springs Fire Department to actually see it, you know, that actually come to fruition. You know, we said that we want to be internationally recognized as industry leaders. And here we are. You know, we, I, I don't think we were at this place and we created this vision statement and that gave us a goal and a purpose. And now we've, we're, we're you know, we've kind of made it to that, you know, and it makes me go, what's next? Well, I'm not sure what's next, but we'll keep trying. I mean, I think we do have a lot of good people with, you know, um, surrounded by a great culture, um, you know, willing to, to be the best they can be um, for themselves, for their teams, and for our community. So, all right, I'd like to thank Anthony Castros for his time. He took a lot of time and effort. He was, you know, coming out of COVID. Yes. Uh, and he, he managed to stick with us for, shoot, about an hour and a half or more um, and remain very energetic. So we appreciate his time and effort. Again, we'd like to say um, if there's anything you would like us to talk about, please let us know. You can come in. We'll sit down and talk to you. Or you can come in and, and, and do it yourself. We can create something for you. Um, and talk about it on the air. Um, but we really want to get out. We want to make more of these. Um, we want to vary the topic so it's just not us droning on and on and just, just our voices that everybody hears. So if you have ideas, please share it with us, um, and we'll try to move this thing forward as, as we move into our second season. One last thing for Anthony Castros. If you'd like to learn more about him, go to trainfirefighters.com, and all his information is on there. All right, Josh, thanks for your time. Everybody, thanks for listening. Be nice to each other. It's important.
I just 